Sometimes we come to church and we're a little down. Has anybody ever gone to church and you're a little down? Right? I promise you when you leave today, you're going to be up. I promise you. You will either be uplifted, which will probably happen, or you're going to be uptight. But you will leave up, I promise. Probably both. If you came down, you will be up. I think you'll be uplifted, and I think you might be uptight. And the Lord just does that sometimes with us, doesn't He? Right? Through His Word. We're uplifted by His Word, and sometimes we're a little uptight because He's revealing things to us. He's showing areas where He wants us to grow and change and mature. And so that makes us a little uptight. And that's okay because our Lord loves us and He knows what's best for us. Amen? I want to preface what this little story I'm about to tell you. It's not a true story, so don't panic. <laughs> There's a certain gentleman who was in the hospital with not one, but two broken legs. The nurse on duty at the time happens into the gentleman's room and proceeds to inform the patient that she has both good news and bad news. Okay. So like most of us, I presume, the gentleman politely requests that he be provided first with the bad news. I always like the bad news first. I like to end on a high. So the nurse goes on to articulate to the patient that unfortunately it appears they're going to have to amputate both of his legs. So next, of course, the gentleman's extremely curious to know what the good news must be. To which the nurse replies, the gentleman in the bed next to you would like to buy your sneakers. It's not a true story, so you can laugh. It's okay to laugh. Today, we enter into the amazing truths that are found in Ephesians 2. The amazing truths that are found in Ephesians 2. It is in this spectacular passage where you and I are presented with a much more serious good news, bad news scenario. Indeed, we already know that the word gospel means what? Good news. So if there's good news, there must be what? Bad news. So what is the bad news? What's the bad news? Consider this. If someone came up to you and they're filled with excitement, barely able to form a sentence because they're so enthusiastic about some good news for you, and then they tell you that you have been cured, Ali Bracket, of cancer, and you say, wow, I, I actually don't have cancer. Is that news good news? Not really. I don't have a problem. You're telling me you got a cure for cancer that I don't have. That's not really good news. The Lord desires that each and every one of us here, each and every person outside of these walls, at some point in our lives, will see the need to wake up and realize that we do indeed have a form of cancer, which is called what? Sin. All of us were born in a cancerous state. And that this cancer, this life of sin, results in death. Eternal separation and eternal damnation apart from God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, creator of heaven and earth. Ephesians 1, which we finished last week, describes our spiritual possessions in Christ. That was Ephesians 1, where he says that Paul writes that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so Ephesians 1 describes our spiritual possessions in Christ. And Ephesians 2 describes our spiritual position in Christ. 
Ephesians 1, spiritual possessions. Ephesians 2, our spiritual position. In fact, life works that way, doesn't it? The positions, think about this, the positions we take in life determine the possessions that we obtain. The positions we take determine the possessions we obtain. In the world of finance, a position is the amount of a security or a commodity or currency that is owed, owned or borrowed and then sold by an individual or an institution or a dealer. A position can be profitable or unprofitable. Anybody ever had an unprofitable position? In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew 16, in Mark 8, and in Luke 9, Jesus Himself says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Let's read Ephesians 2, verses 1-10 through this morning. We're in Ephesians 2, we're in 1 through 10. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. <laughs> Here's the bad news, church, right? The bad news, good news? Look, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Hey, look, <laughs> do we have to, our, when our kids were toddlers, did we teach them to act like they were two when they were two? Oh no, man, it's in their nature. And you're like, where did that come from? It's in their nature. You want to know sinful nature, have a toddler, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. <laughs> Here's the good news, church. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. And He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. The gift of salvation is not of yourself. It is a gift from God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. And we're created now in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You for Your Holy Word that directs our lives, that offers us hope, that gives us peace as we surrender to You because You have the riches of heaven that You want to pour out on those that put their faith and hope and trust in You. Father, we pray that You have Your way with us this morning as we go through Ephesians 2, verses 1-10, through 10, that You would mold us and shape us as You desire. Have Your way with us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. So, here's our outline. In verses 1-3, through 3, we're children of wrath. That's what those verses say. we got a problem. We are children of wrath. That's the bad news. The good news is, Christ did something on the cross. And it says, But God, while You were dead in Your transgressions, made you alive. That's the good news. You were dead, church. God made you alive. Is that good news? Heck yeah. But it doesn't end there. 
He doesn't stop at verse 7. You were dead, now you're alive, let's party until God comes back. Oh no! He says, you now are a new creation. You were dead. And you're now alive in Christ. You were created in Christ to do something now. This is the uptight part. Right? Where God says, I saved you. You're my creation. You're my workmanship. It says in verse, or verse 8, we are his, verse 10, sorry, we are His workmanship created in Him to do good works. In fact, Matthew 5.16, some of us may know this verse, where Jesus said, let men see your good works so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Let men see your good works in such a way that they would glorify God in heaven. Matthew 5.16 So, our first part of the outline. Number one, children of wrath. Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians 2. Verses 1, 2, and 3. You were dead in your sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, that's the devil, of the spirit that is now working in those who are disobedient, in sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I love how the NIV does verse 1. Check this out. <laughs> you have it on the screen? Thank you. So, <laughs> you guys ever been in trouble? I was in a lot of trouble as a kid. Even really up until a couple months ago, I used to get into a lot of trouble. So, that was a joke. So, if you've ever gotten in trouble with a group of people, when it ever got to when and they say, as for you, right, that, that means like you're in the most trouble. Right? Randy, blah, blah, blah. Roberta, blah, blah, blah. Warren, blah, blah, blah. As for you, I was always the as for you guy when I got in trouble. You knew that was serious stuff. As for you, Mr. McGrath, you're in some deep trouble. So I love the way the NIV does that. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So, I can't help myself. I actually typed this up, and it's just the way it came out, and I realized I'm brilliant. I'm a poet and didn't even know it. Anyway, so check this out. In verse 1 and 2, you see the word you in verse 1 and you in verse 2. So the question is, who is the you in verse 1 and verse 2? So who is the you in verse 1 and verse 2? Check this out. I'm not done. It's the same as the we that you'll find in verse 3. Aha! Who is the you in verse 1 and verse 2? It's the same as the we that you'll find in verse 3. Paul's writing to the Gentiles. And so verse 1 and 2, he says, You were dead. You formerly walked. Among them, we too did the same thing. We, now meaning the Jews. So the you in verse 1 is the Gentiles. The we in verse 3 is the Jews. Who do the Jews and Gentiles represent? All of mankind. So who's dead in their trespasses and sins? Everybody. You and we. All of us. See, it says in verse 2, you formerly walked. And he says in verse 3, we too formerly walked or lived. But there's a word there between we too and formerly lived. We too all formerly lived. Indulging the flesh. Indulging the desires of our flesh. All of us. So this bad news is further clarified in the end of verse 3. So you Gentiles were dead. All of us Jews were dead. 
And by nature, we were children of wrath, even as the rest, which means you, we are like you. We were children of wrath, even like the rest means like the rest of mankind, like everybody, all of mankind. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us. Romans 5.12 says this. It says, therefore, Paul writes to the Romans, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. Romans 5, he further goes on to say in Romans 5, 18 and 19, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation, wrath, to all of us, even so, through one act of righteousness, which is Christ on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all of us. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Look, you're not righteous. You were made righteous. You and I are not righteous, but we were made righteous. Are you kidding? He made us that way. Jill Pang, you're not righteous. No, I'm not. But Christ made me righteous. I'm not, but He made me that way. Thank you, Lord. We're not simply dead in our transgressions and sins because one day our lives will end and that's it. The result of being dead in our trespasses and sins speaks of a spiritual death. The result is that we become children of wrath for eternity because a holy and just God must deal with sin. And so either Christ's blood shed for us or our own life will pay for that sin if we don't put our hope, faith, and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at how Paul breaks down these trespasses and sins that are mentioned in verse 1. He says in verse 2, right, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1, in which you formerly walked according, so the first one is according to the course of this world. That's pressing in on us. The course of this world presses in on us. I would encourage you to find out how the course of this world is pressing in on you. Be careful. Take heed. And then it goes on to say, according to the prince of the power of the air, there's a real enemy and his legion of demons that press in on us. So we have a world that presses in on us. We have a spiritual force called the devil or Satan and his followers that press in on us. And then the third thing in verse 3, it says that we walk according to the lusts of our own flesh and desires. And so our own evil sinful nature presses in on us. We have a lot pressing in on us, don't we? We have a lot pressing in on us, don't we? It's difficult when we have those three things pressing in on us. But, let me make this really, really clear. Let me be clear about where the problem rests with our sin and with our transgressions. The fault of our trespasses and sins cannot be blamed on the world It cannot be blamed on Satan, and it cannot be blamed on our flesh. These verses show us that it's a matter of our own will. It's a matter of our own will. We either will be obedient, or we will be disobedient. It's a choice we make. Scripture tells us as much. Look at what verse 2 says. 
in which you formerly walked, the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience says that we're placed in our lives. I'm going to be a son of disobedience. I don't want to be a son of obedience. I'm going to be a son or a daughter. I'm going to be a follower. I'm going to be a son of disobedience. It's our will. We choose if we're going to be sons of disobedience or sons of obedience. It's a choice that we make. So we can't do the, well, you know, I wouldn't have done that, but, you know, the worldly pressures caused me to sin. I wouldn't have done that, but the devil made me do it. I wouldn't have done that, but, you know, the flesh is, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's not really my fault. No. God won't put us in any situation that he won't provide a way out for us. He's empowered us with his Holy Spirit so that we can walk righteously and uprightly before him. Amen? It's disobedience that leads to this wrong spirit in verse 2 working within us. And conversely, obedience leads to the Holy Spirit working within us, right? John 16, Jesus says this, which is interesting. Jesus says, check this out. He says, I tell you the truth, church. It's to your advantage that I go away. Whoa, no, Jesus, don't go. Don't go, Jesus. I need to go away. If I don't, the Helper will not come to you. And and you need help is what He's saying. We need help. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we either choose through that Holy Spirit's help to be children of obedience or children of disobedience. Because the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world concerning sin or righteousness and the judgment that goes with it. Huh. Where it says the helper will not come to you, right? Like, you know, if I don't go away, the helper, that word helper in the Greek is parakletos. One called alongside to help or a comforter or an advocate or an intercessor. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us by the power of His Holy Spirit, by the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We can walk by the Lord's Spirit and live, or we can walk by the world's Spirit and die. Clearly, the world, Satan and our flesh, is working against us. Thankfully, in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, Paul talks about the putting on the armor of our Lord, putting on the armor of God so that we can fight the, the good fight. Second stanza, Christ's awesome work, verses 4 through 7. Let's read 4 through 7. But God, but God, but God, church, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, He made us alive together with Christ and He raised us up with Him and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace toward us. Wow. 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 Verse 1 says, As for you, as for you, as for you, you were dead. And then verse 4, But God, but God made us alive. As for you, you were dead. But God made us alive. After this horribly bad news in verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul gives 
exceedingly good news in 4, 5, 6, and 7. Listen to this. One commentary says this. Listen. The unbeliever's not sick. When we don't put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, the unbeliever's not sick. He's dead. When we don't put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're not sick. We're dead. He does not need resuscitation. He needs what? Resurrection. When we don't put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, we're not weak. We're not sick. We're dead. We don't need resuscitating. We need resurrecting. Dead. Gone. Never to be seen again. And He makes us alive. Huh. Oh, these two words, but God. Oh, these two words, but God. Oh, those two words, but God. Perhaps, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say, perhaps the two most important words in the history of mankind, but God. But God. Have these two powerful words made their way into your daily life. Your sanctification process, not just your salvation moment. Right? You were dead, but God made you alive. Alright, I'm saved. Amen. Boom, we're done. We need to live every day with but God mentality. Every day. As part of our sanctification. Where the enemy says, you can't follow Jesus. You're not good enough for this. You're not good enough for that. But God. You're still a sinner. You still have evil thoughts. But God. How often do we use but God? compared to other words that we allow to penetrate our hearts and our minds and our ears. We let so much stuff in, but how often do we say, oh no, but God. My marriage isn't going very well, but God can change that. My job situation stinks, but God can take care of that. I'm really struggling with life in general, but my eyes are focused on God because God can fix it. Oh, but God. Somebody tells you or the enemy tries to tell you or you tell yourself that you aren't capable of leading that particular ministry or serving in that particular area of church. And you say, oh, but God. Oh, I had to wrestle with that too. Who are you to think you can replace John Warhouse? He was a gifted man. He led this church faithfully. And I'm like, not me, but God. But God. See, people can say things. The enemy can accuse us. Other people in the church, people outside the church, can actually say things that are true. Joe Lang, you're this and you're that. You say, yes, that's true. But God, because that's also true. Pastor Rob, you're this and you're that. Yeah, that's true. But God. We need but God in our everyday language, church. We need it in our everyday language. Can I get an amen? Amen. My hope and my prayer for you is that every day you find a way to boldly proclaim, but God, right? My wife tells me all the time, you don't deserve to be married to me. And I say, but God. She's only said it a few times. 
And I'm thankful for it. Trust me. What do these verses tell us about our God? What do verses 4-7 through tell us about our Lord? Check out verse 4. But God, He's rich in mercy. And then it says He's rich in love. His great love. And then look at verse 7. It says the riches of His grace. Church. Verses 4 and 7 say He's rich in mercy. He's rich in love. And He's rich in grace. That's a cool thing, right? We serve a God that's rich in mercy, that's rich in love, and rich in grace. But if you don't read carefully, which I'm going to show you in a second, you're going to miss something. So God's like, ah, i got riches of mercy. Ah, it's all mine. Ah, i got riches of love. It's all mine. Ah, I've got riches of grace. It's all mine. Is that good? What do you mean? Why not? We serve a God that's rich in grace and rich in mercy and rich in love and He keeps it all. See? Sometimes we stop there. Check out verse 4. See, God doesn't just possess these riches. He practices these riches. And that's the lesson for us. Check out verse 4. But God being rich in mercy and rich in love, look at those words. Because of his, because of his great love with which he loved us. Those words don't need to be there, but they do need to be there. He could have just said because of his great love, because of his great mercy, and because of his great grace, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. Because of his great love with which he loved us. (laughs) Right? So if we're to be people of mercy, we're to be merciful to people. If we're to be people of love, we need to love people. If we're to be, if we're people of grace, we need to be gracious towards people. I'd love to know if it's even possible, and I know it's not, but we'll pretend that God had a top ten list of people that He extended grace to. I'd probably be in the top ten. I'm just saying. I'm not bragging, but I'm probably in the top ten of people that God extended grace to. If God had a top ten, who would those top ten people be that He extended grace to? We don't know. Who's on your list? Right? Who's, who's on your list? If I said, who are the top ten people since you've come to know Christ that you have extended grace to, who's on your top ten? Well, I actually haven't done that yet. I'm still gathering grace. I am not ready to actually give it out yet. I'm still learning what it means to just kind of hang on to it for a while. I kind of like it. It makes me warm and fuzzy inside. He doesn't just possess these riches. He practices these riches and expects us to do the same, church. So praise the Lord when you have moments to extend grace. Praise the Lord when you have moments to extend love and when you have moments to extend mercy. You're probably doing that every time I preach and I want to say thank you. You're practicing really well. We're to do the same. 1 John 4, verses 15-17 through 17, and then we're going to jump to 19. 1 John 4, 15-17. 16 and 17. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he abides in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And then the one who knows how to abide in the same way abides in God. And God will abide in him. And then by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in that day of judgment, because as he is or was, so also are we in this world. And then verse 19, we love church. We love 
because He first loved us. We can't just say we're loving. We can't just say we're merciful. We can't just say we're gracious. We have to extend it. Start building your top ten of grace. Start start building your top ten of love. Start building your top ten of mercy. And then because of these riches, He does three things which we don't have time to get into in verses 5 and 6. Because of these riches, He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. And He seated us with Christ. But here's what's really powerful. He's not just rich in love. He's not just rich in mercy. He's not just rich in grace. He doesn't just make us alive together with Christ. He doesn't just raise us up with Christ. He doesn't just seed us with Christ. When does He do this? When does He do this? It's in our text. Check it out. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, rich in love, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses and sins. God's rich in love. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in grace. He raises us with Christ. He makes us alive with Christ. He seats us with Christ. Even when we are at our worst. That's when He does those things. He is always at His best. Even when we are at our worst. And so we're at our worst and we bolt. We get like Adam and Eve and we run and we hide. We run and we hide and we try to cover our shame and our sin. And God's like, oh no, even when you were dead, I am rich in mercy. I am rich in grace. I am rich in love. I will raise you with Christ. I will make you alive with Christ and I will seat you in the heavenly places even when you're in your transgressions and sins. He takes away all excuses to run to Him. We can run to Him. When we are at our worst, He will be at His best at all times. It's incredible. And I hope we're living our lives according to that virtually incomprehensible truth that we live that way. That when we're at our worst, we can go to Him because He'll be at His best. Lastly, we're created for good works. We're created for good works. Verses 8, 9, and 10. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's meaning that process of salvation is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works. Okay, so nobody's going to be able to boast about this. The only boasting we'll have, Galatians tells us, is in Christ. For we are now His workmanship. We were created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The beginning of verse 10 is really the centerpiece of these three verses. It says in the beginning of verse 10, right? We were were dead. We weren't sick. We were dead. Now we're alive. We've been created. It's a new creation. And it says we're His. He did that for us. We are His workmanship. We were created in Christ for good works. Listen. Verse 10 speaks of a colossal, enormous, gigantic plan of God. That's what verse 10 speaks of. How well are you and I doing our part in this colossal, enormous, gigantic plan of God's? Look what verse 10 says. We are His workmanship. That's the first part. 
that workmanship was something that was created in Christ Jesus. That's part two. And we were created in Christ Jesus for a reason. For good works. That's the next part of that verse. Where His workmanship that was done through Christ for a reason, for good works, which God prepared a long time ago. That's what it says, which God prepared beforehand. So that, that's the equal sign, that we would walk in them. We were dead, verses 1 through 3. We're made alive, verses 4 through 7. But he doesn't stop there. Get to work. Get to work. We're your, I, we're his workmanship. We were, now we're created in Christ for good works so that we would obediently walk in those good works to serve one another, to do ministry together, to advance the purposes of God's kingdom together. It's not my life was bad, sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus so I can go back to what I was doing. No, you had no life. Zero. You were dead. And you're now alive. We got work to do. And I'm guilty of not doing God's work many times in many years of my life. I get it. Other things get in the way. This is the part where you might feel it be feeling a little tight part if you haven't figured it out, right? I get it. But I don't know what else to make of that. We're His workmanship. We're, we're, we're a new creation to do good works. And so we get to wrestle with what that looks like. God, how? What works do you have for me? Because you prepared beforehand that I would walk obediently in them. It's such a huge challenge for us. Life gets in the way, doesn't it? But it's not supposed to. That's the world coming in on us. That's the enemy coming in on us. That's the flesh coming in on us. And we've got to push that stuff aside and get to work. Go to Titus. You have first and second Thessalonians, and then first and second Timothy. And I presume Titus is still tucked in behind there. It hasn't moved since last night. I can never find Titus. Looks like he's always hiding from me. I'm like, dude, where are you? Oh, there you are. Okay. I'm going to read this. We'll close with this, and then I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Titus. Chapter 2. Oh man, starting in verse 11. Titus, right? First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. This kind of recapsulates, right? Or recaps everything we just talked about. For the grace of God has appeared. That's Christ. Bringing salvation to all men that would put their faith and hope and trust in Christ. And it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and then live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present evil age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every, not most, everyone, every lawless deed, and to, <laughs> and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. 
church, that's what he's doing to us. He's purifying for himself a people that belong to him. Pastor Mark, are you possessed? I actually am. Say, I thought so. I'm possessed by God. God possesses me. I'm a people for his own possession. Look at this. Zealous for what? What does it say? Zealous for what? Good deeds. A people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But if I were to say to you, are you zealous for good deeds? I wonder if your hand would go up. And I love the last verse. He tells Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's hard sometimes for pastors to do that, to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. But I must if Scripture is Scripture. Amen? I want to be zealous for good deeds. Oh, sure, I do good deeds. Does zealous describe me? Does that describe me? Am I zealous for good deeds? Am I a zealot? Am I possessed by God? I'm going to have the worship team come up. Let me pray. And when the worship team is done with their song, as we close the service, man, if you need prayer, please come see our prayer team. They'll be down here in the corner. Get prayed for, please. Let me pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You, Lord, that You have made us alive through Christ. You have raised us up with Him and You have seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Lord, thank You for the riches of Your grace that You extend to us while we slowly become like You. While our sanctification process, Lord, sometimes gets tripped up, we we just continue to focus our eyes on You and trust You. Lord, we love You and we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.